I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. This week, I traveled about 13 miles to South San Francisco, also known as the birthplace of biotechnology. But I was not visiting a traditional biotech company. Instead, I was going to Verily Life Sciences to chat with Jessica Mega, their chief medical and scientific officer. Verily is a part of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. It was born originally as Google X, and later became Google Life Sciences, and ultimately Verily Life Sciences. When founded several years ago, they set out to use the tools of traditional technology companies, like Google, to tackle problems, health and disease, that were usually the domain of traditional biotechnology companies that make drugs or medical devices. Interestingly, as I mentioned, the Verily campus is located in South San Francisco, the West Coast hub of traditional biotech. Yet the buildings have a distinctly Silicon Valley feel to them. Just a few steps from Genentech and Amgen, among others, what you find when you walk in is open workspaces, sofas, glassed-in conference rooms, free food, and coffee that you find in a typical technology company. Now about Jessica Mega, Dr. Jessica Mega. Jess is a cardiologist who left a highly productive career at Harvard about five years ago to come west to help build a life science presence at Google. Jess made some bold decisions early on to get where she did. We spoke about the key principles that motivated her to leave Harvard and move her family to Northern California to work for a company that was best known for its search engine. Jess has used best-known methods throughout her life, and she uses best-known methods in her current role at Verily. She's become a great friend and someone with whom I always enjoy talking, whether it's about medicine, science, or technology, or all of them, or even just life. Jess doesn't do many interviews, so this was a treat, an inside look at how a tech company is thinking about health, and about how one of its core leaders thinks about how data and technology might transform the healthcare of the future. So I was born in New York City, and then when we were a about, I was eight years old. We moved to North Carolina, and both of my parents are physicians. There was great opportunity in North Carolina at the time. For me as a child, it was obviously quite different to be living in New York City and then living in eastern North Carolina, but I think that that fabric has really made me who I am. And also seeing them take a real leap at a time where they had a pretty known trajectory has influenced me for years. How did they end up making that decision to leave New York and move to Durham? So uh, actually, we ended up moving first to Grimesland and then to Greenville. There was a medical center and a medical school that had opened recently. And the opportunity to be part of something that was growing and that was new really was incredibly compelling to them. And I, I even remember the drive as we left New York City and, and worked our way there, but it just it felt optimistic and a place where they could have a real impact on the community. And how old were you at that time? Uh, around eight years old. Wow. Yeah. And so at that point, at eight, did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? So the story goes, even when I was a young child, seeing my parents, my dad's an ENT surgeon and my mom's a child psychiatrist. And seeing them both love being doctors, and obviously those are very different professions, but seeing them both care deeply about patients, loving their job, I think had a huge impact on me. And my brother and I would spend a lot of our time at the hospital. This was back in the day. We would go on rounds with them, and I would sit in the waiting room with with some of the, the patients. And I remember playing with some toys, particularly my mom's office uh, there as, as a child psychiatrist, but just seeing these interactions and the impact did have a profound influence on me. And there's a story in the family that I carried around a little book. And when kids would get chicken pox, for example, I would go and put calamine lotion on and read the uh, prescriptions from, from my book. So, okay. So you ended up just going off to college and deciding you were going to go to medical school. Did you go straight through? So interestingly, there was a period of time, I think like all good teenagers where you have to forge your own path and make sure you're doing what you want to do. 
I ended up going from my my hometown uh, then to college at Stanford and explored many different different opportunities. I think one great thing about being at Stanford at that period of time, there was just a ton of energy. And it is a university that believes in the confluence of things like engineering and medicine and communications and the world and design. And so being in that environment allowed me to really explore. And I met phenomenal friends who were also doing so many different things. And so I didn't necessarily know that the whole path was going to lead to medicine, but it was it was a time that supported exploration. But also uh, by the end, it was very clear that I wanted to go to med school. And so what else did you think about while you were going through your years at Stanford? Was there anything else that you thought, oh, that could be an interesting career path for me? Yeah, probably. I'm a very open person uh, in terms of I looked more deeply at some of the the science and, and mathematics. But at the same time, uh, I remember one anthropology professor uh, who uh, just had just the way looking at the world and understanding how the world influences, how people influence others, how uh, societal times and changes and memes uh, end up having influence. And there, there was a moment where where that was interesting too, and I, I think medicine actually is at the convergence of uh, a lot of the human element of life, and then the science and math. So it it ultimately was was the right fit for me. And so, where did you go to medical school? I uh, went to Yale Medical School, and um, once again found a phenomenal community there. The thing that I always enjoyed about Yale is that part of their ethos was that. We only succeed if we all succeed. And there's a thing called the Yale system that people who go to med school there hold on to very dearly. And I believe in life that is how we're ultimately judged. It's not about your individual contribution or y- y- the things that you can write down. It's what do we accomplish um, as a team. And I remember that anything from my uh, anatomy partners to uh, the folks that I ended up studying with for standardized tests, it, it really was this idea that there's something greater than the sum of the parts. And so were you evaluated that way? I mean, was it, were they true to that mission that it was basically you were evaluated as a group? You had to, you had to take your own test at some point, but really it was about how you conducted yourself in the context of all the people around you. And certainly when it comes to the standardized test, uh, there's no, uh, we weren't able to pass the pencil around there, but I do think if you get infused with this ethic early on as you go through life, you can make choices where you put yourself in environments that are more collaborative. And so basically, you learned how to work as a as a team. You learned, learned how to work back in teams when you were in, in school, and you value that. I, I value it tremendously because that's how life actually works, right? So if you think about uh, in the hospital, so when I round and see patients... Now, as an attending, there are teams of, well, they're multidisciplinary teams. So there are occupational therapists and physical therapists and nurses and residents and interns and all sort of pharmacists. And if that's not all in concert, then it really doesn't matter what you do as an attending. And so I think to be effective on the clinical side, thinking that way goes a long way and um, have lots of examples of that. And then on now a leadership team, again, you want to bring all of your skill sets and you want to bring your domain knowledge. But again, it's much more effective if you're doing it in harmony with people who have other skill sets. Do you think that your experience at Yale really helped enable that, that you were, you're more naturally able to delegate and act as a team leader as opposed to being more hierarchical today? It's certainly, it's interesting. I, I actively chose Yale for that reason. And I think in life, you you make choices and those choices affect who you are. And it's not to be so deterministic about it, but I've always been really thoughtful about the environments that you choose to go in because, again, I think it has a lasting effect on on how you carry yourself as a person. The, the advice I usually give people, there's so many wonderful medical schools out there that there's, in many cases, there's no wrong choice. And sometimes that takes the lever of pressure off people because people put a ton of pressure on themselves and this idea that if you make this choice, then it's going to lead to this, and that there's a series of very linear choices. I, I think that's that's probably too constructed. But I did pay attention to the ethos. I, I always um, I had this idea that if you look to see 
do people look well watered, right? So as a, as a collective, is it that the flowers are blooming or is it a place where there's um, uh, a lot of trampling and, and things look, um, they look like they're not uh, in full bloom? Now that's a beautiful metaphor. Jess took a tough decision, the one of which medical school to attend, and applied her own best-known method to it. She wanted to develop her leadership in an environment that valued open and collaborative organizational structures, and she did. But she never forgot what well-watered people look like, and she has attended to making sure that everyone she works with is well-watered as a leader. She also learned early on to value working in teams as opposed to individually, and this principle continues to be important to her today. So then I uh, ended up uh, going to do internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, followed by a fellowship in cardiology at Massachusetts General Hospital. And was the cardiology something that you knew you wanted to do before you started, or was it something that came to you during your residency time? Uh, I think in the same way with college, where I was incredibly open-minded, and this is both true for for medical school. I thought for a while I was going to be a surgeon. I thought about all different pathways, but I really liked internal medicine and cardiology in particular because it brings together kind of the intense piece of uh, the procedural aspects as well, but then combining that with the the thought process of if someone has a certain set of conditions, what would be the broad diagnostics and the this going through this exercise and this thought process, combining that with the more intense procedural aspects or the critical care aspects being at that intersection made a lot of sense to me. The other place where I was probably a, a little off base, I, I thought about myself as someone who maybe wanted a little more time or being a thinker, but I found myself, I was always the first person at the codes and I was always running into, uh, into chaos. And what I found is I actually uh, probably have more of a sense of calm uh, in chaos than, than I think most people would feel. Okay, so here's a question. Do you run to codes or do you walk to codes? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, uh, I, so what I've noticed is I take a deep breath. So, okay, so we're in the emergency room and uh, some, uh, someone starts to, um, to arrest. What I do is, is I pause, I take a moment, and then I, I kind of spring into action and I have a pretty low startle response. I, I don't know if that resonates, but I just notice that I can pause in that moment, regroup, and it's much more, it's much more effective. You then went on during your fellowship to, to have quite a, you know, good success and as a researcher, was that something that you had thought about before or even done before you got, got there? Or was this a new thing for you? I was pretty fortunate that I was able to be exposed to a number of different research environments at an early age. I mean, one of the major, major advantages of growing up where I did in Greenville, North Carolina, is that there there is a major medical center there, and there are phenomenal faculty doing great research. And I was able to access that at a pretty young age. So I worked in a pharmacology group with a phenomenal PI there, and then uh, spent some additional time actually thinking about medical communications and how do we actually translate our, our message. And so by the time I had gotten into into residency and then into fellowship, uh, I saw the value of in conjunction with caring for patients and doing the best thing for the person in front of you. If you really want to think about improving clinical outcomes and evidence generation, uh, for me at the time, and this was in it's it's interesting to say now, but this was really the heyday of clinical trials in cardiology. And my thought was, if we run these trials in the most effective way, we'll get evidence to help patients. And so it's really this self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's what attracted me to the field. So tell tell me about the, what's the Timmy group? Uh, so it's a group that was founded by Jean Bromwald, who really is a legend in cardiology and someone who I consider a mentor and a really good friend. And the idea was... Uh, we know how to treat uh, heart attacks, or people had had certain ways of treating heart attacks, but there was clearly so much more to be done. And we've gone on over time, though, to think about new ways of uh, when should someone undergo catheterization and when should we treat with certain antiplatelet therapies, uh, what is the right lipid targets, but it takes these clinical trials and this evidence to really shift the needle. 
And the beauty and the interesting thing about clinical trials, if they're organized and done correctly, whether you see a positive outcome with a certain intervention or a negative or neutral one, you have an answer that you can apply to patient care. I went on to continue to do research. I also got a, a master's in public health at the time focused on statistics and epidemiology. But interestingly, I have been doing work with the Timmy Group since I had started as a resident. So by the time I had gotten to my formal years there, um, I was already part of the family. And was that important looking back now? Do you think that was something that you'd recommend to a young person get involved early and kind of get to know your mentors and that'll help you, uh, you know, years down the road? Well, I think first and foremost, a lot of people uh, ask about this. The most important thing is when someone's a resident, or this could be true for anyone who's starting any job, really do that part amazingly. Like when you're an intern, wow, the ability to be on the front lines and be with the patients and ask all the questions, that opportunity never comes around again. So I never want people to shortchange that. And again, I, I think the same is true for folks I work with now when it's their first job here, for example, uh, at Verily, really make the most of that. Now, with that being said, if it interests you and it's for the right reasons and you have the bandwidth, it, it's, it can be a really uh, good experience to start to look around and meet different people and even take on a small project or two, uh, much, like a, much like a randomized trial, because you're giving yourself that exposure. And just as many people who did what I did, made the active decision to say, you know, I, I don't really want to go forward and, and spend time doing that kind of research. So again, if done well, it can help you make better decisions, but never, I think sometimes this uh, desire to do so many things makes all of us everywhere, but nowhere. Absolutely. And there, there's the other problem that young people sort of are told or think they're told that in order to get into the best fellowships or succeed that they have to have some academic research component to it. And so a lot of them come to it, not because they have a genuine curiosity, but because they feel like it's a box they have to check. And, and to some extent, maybe we all have that. Um, I don't know if you can think back in your life about how much of yours was sort of box checking versus a real genuine mission. Uh, most of what I've found is that I, uh, I really have to, if, so for any of these endeavors to work, you have to spend it lot of time doing it. And it's really hard to fake it for that long. And so I am sure there are things that I've done to check a box. But if you're going to continue to do things for a long period of time, then it has to be a passion. It has to be a pull because otherwise you just can't, you, you won't have the stamina. I'm trying to think. I, um, my, uh, my mom would probably say uh, piano for me. I was a, <laughs> as a young kid. I, I tried to play that. I tried to practice but uh yeah that that probably wasn't a good long term yeah. a long term thing uh for me as an ex- as an example you have to really if you're going to be great at something you have to put in the time Jess is practically an encyclopedia of best known method during this phase of her life not only did she continue to seek to work in groups she also developed a sense of calm as she described it when there was a cardiac arrest in the hospital she walked there and did not run She paused and thought before barking out instructions. She thrived on the pressure and maintaining a sense of calm during an incredibly tense time. You can hear it in her voice. But it was during this phase of her life that she also really began to cultivate her research jobs. She had gone on to work while a resident with a famous clinical trials group in Boston called the Timmy Group. Timmy stands for thrombolysis and myocardial infarction. And it got that name because heart attacks occur when blood clots form on the inside of heart arteries and stop the blood flow, starving the heart muscle of blood and oxygen downstream. A revolution in the treatment of heart attacks occurred with the development of so-called clot-busting drugs, thrombolytics. A group led by a very famous cardiologist, Eugene Brownwald, published one of the first trials that showed that these drugs saved lives, and the trial was called the Timmy trial, thrombolysis and myocardial infarction. And because of the success of this trial, they formed a clinical trials group, a machine that still exists today, Jess found great mentorship, as many others have, in Dr. Brownwald, and found the Timmy Group to be an amazing training ground for her. She found her place. She found what she loved. She also introduced a concept we will hear about again, which is basically that we have only one chance to make a great first impression. She did not waste it. So when by the time you got to the Timmy Group, 
they were no longer doing trials on thrombolytics and myocardial infarction, which is how they got the name. Uh, what were you working on when you kind of arrived at full time doing research? What was your sort of first big project? So I, uh, I certainly we, we work another place where we work together um, in terms of uh, I had done actually some research in med school where it was a little bit more independent. It was almost hanging up a shingle and, and doing my own research and obviously with with a great mentor, but a lot of it was done pretty isolated. And what it taught me is that if you're going to do particularly clinical research, you do need to be part of this broader continuum and this idea of collective science. Uh, once again, this theme is is arising. So we certainly all worked on a number of different initiatives. But the place where I ended up spending a lot of my time was in two different areas. One was looking at new blood thinners or new anticoagulants. Uh, so for many years, we've had things like warfarin that I think a lot of folks know about and uh, certainly aspirin and other antiplatelets. But there are other, uh, at the time, they were considered new uh, anticoagulants and spent a lot of time thinking about the mechanisms behind them and would they be beneficial for patients with with heart attacks. So I, I got deep into clinical trials that spanned 40 plus countries, a thousand sites, got to work with people all around the world because I think healthcare and life science and patient outcomes, that's not a, a local or regional phenomenon. That That is really global. So uh, so I did that and, and have many, many fond uh, experiences and memories with that. And at the same time, what several of us started to notice is that we would go and publish results in phenomenal journals, um, in the New England Journal and in JAMA and the Lancet. But what we would publish is the aggregate results of the clinical trial. And so we would say intervention A versus B is superior. Uh, and what it struck me is if we were studying 10,000 or 20,000 participants and partnering with these volunteers, are there other personal insights that we could gain? And so we started to think about biomarkers and genetics, and this was before personalized medicine is as hot as it is today or as it discussed, but it really felt like an opportunity. So uh, thinking about both the population scale impact, and that's where the, the large-scale clinical trials were, but also what it meant for an individual, and uh, that's where my career really took me. Okay, let's start with the first one. I want to come back to the second one. So for the first one, so obviously you're doing a big trial with a big pharmaceutical company partner, usually. How much of that process is driven by the company versus how much of it was driven by the academic research group? Well, certainly it depends on on every circumstance. But in, in our case, we were heavily involved in thinking about, first, what is the problem that we're all trying to solve? Uh, so what do we know about heart attacks today? What do we understand about the pathobiology? And then from there, what would be the right interventions to explore? Is there enough of uh, a scientific imperative to say this is where we want to really lean in, and then from there working on the protocols and making sure that the the certain the things that become important is what's the design, who do you include uh, once someone is randomized, what do you do for a follow up, and then what are the outcomes that really matter? And that's been evolving over time. There are things like hard clinical endpoints that we talk about, so cardiovascular death or MI, but then there are other things like quality of life and really getting firm on what success metrics look like is important. And we were, and I was part of the discussions along the whole way. Okay. Well, so you mentioned before that you were looking sort of at the aggregate out outcomes of some intervention A versus some intervention B, but you really wanted to delve deep into, you know, what, what might be driving some of these inter-individual differences. So tell, tell me a little bit about how that came about. Was that something that you thought of, or was that something you and a mentor had a cup of coffee and decided this would be fun to look at? How was that whole thing born? So I was able to work with uh, two people, well, many, many people who had huge influence on me, but in particular, Dave Morrow, who was looking at a lot of blood protein biomarkers. Uh, and in parallel, Mark Sabatin and I and, and others thought you know, there, there's got to be genetic underpinnings here as well. And so what we talked about is, is, should we start to collect blood samples and look at the individual genetics? Uh, interestingly, the work that we started to do uh, would have led us in in one direction uh, because there were certain the thing we call drug drug interactions and we thought it was giving us insight into how a medicine was working. Um, incidentally, we tested other genetic variants because it happened to be on this chip and that's where the gold was. And so uh, the lesson there is to always 
to be bold, to have a scientific vision, to have an idea, but to be open-minded enough to see things that may not be right under the lamppost in front of you. And over time, we were able to really, I think, understand this medicine called Plavix or Clopidogrel, understand genetic variants that influence the way people metabolize this medicine. And at the time, it was one of the highest prescribed medicines. And to understand the genetic basis and response um, was, was really, was really eye-opening. When Jess set out on her formal research years, she kept a few important principles in mind. She placed an emphasis on the importance of joining an environment with the right ethos. But she also clearly understood that whatever research she did had to be firmly rooted in a big problem. She was not going to look for a solution in search of a problem. She was going to solve problems. And she had a two-pronged approach to do this. First was to get experience running large, randomized controlled clinical trials, RCTs. And the second was born out of the first, which was the realization that RCTs told us a lot about how two interventions might compare in large populations of people, but did not tell us about the individual. So she set out to use modern tools of genetics and genomics to learn about individual variations. And in a key best-known method moment, she had the vision, courage, and openness to look for gold in places other than directly under the lamppost. By not being attached to dogma or to her preconceived ideas, she made a major and fundamental practice-changing discovery about how people with a certain difference in their genetic code were more or less sensitive to the actions of a powerful medication people take to prevent blood clots after a heart attack. That moment does not come around often, and this is such a great lesson in how opportunities like this are easy to miss if you're not prepared, if you're not open, and if you do not have the vision. So you had a pretty meteoric rise. I mean, you were, um, you were really making a career for yourself. And just as you were really launching, a big change happened in your life. And so how did that happen? How did, how did you end up leaving academics to come work at Google? And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the decision-making process that went into even just having the conversation and then actually deciding to move your whole family across the country. So I think one... Uh theme that I mentioned a minute ago is making sure we bring the right tools and technologies to help patients. And what was interesting is I started to look around and there were different phenomena that were lining up. Uh, One is in healthcare, if you think about the amount of data that we were talking about, we're talking about gigabytes of data, but the world is moving to terabytes of data. And at the time, spending time thinking about genetics and genomics and proteomics, and then how is that going to be combined with digital data and things like imaging? There just weren't the right sources of infrastructure to do the work that I thought was going to be most meaningful, which is really understanding comprehensive health. So one was understanding that health data is going to continue to explode as it is in many different fields and making sense of it. I'm not a big fan of just big data for big data sake, but really understanding it and organizing it, it just started to seem so obvious. And some of this data was going to come from in the clinic, but a lot of it was not, right? A lot of it It may be important to understand how your sleep was last night, for example. So seeing that and then also understanding that computing was changing. There was a period of time where where you compute didn't matter so much. So I would call all the different facilities in Boston and try to get the best deals because I had to pay for it with grant money. And and so I, I knew all the pricing. And then all of a sudden you started to see the advent of an acceptance of cloud computing. And so it was no longer as relevant where you compute, but how you compute. And this idea that if we could bring these tools and technologies back to healthcare and back to life science, that we could really do something good. And so I was in this exploration and I got a call from Andy Conrad, who is our, uh, the CEO now of Verily. And he started to talk about this world where, where these things could be possible. Uh, it was going to take a lot of work, but I could see the, the vision and it was just another chapter in bringing the right tools and technologies to help patient. So at first it was a little wacky. I I remember taking several phone the, the joke internally is I took several phone calls before I actually came out here and then it was the uh, the snowiest winter in Boston. I don't know if you happen to be there in 2014 or 15. But it was uh, incredibly snowy. I lost my pager in a snowbank which I had never lost. That was my pager I had had since I was uh, since I was a resident. Uh, but I, the, the real story is that I, I came out here and here being California, 
and met a really passionate and dedicated group of engineers and scientists who wanted to make an impact in healthcare, but realized that you have to have folks around the table that understand what it means to take care of patients and understands what it means to gather the right evidence in life science and healthcare. And I saw this opportunity to say, we've got to bring the right people around the table to do this right. So in retrospect, do you think that you were um, secretly looking to do something different or were you just open to doing something different? I mean, were you sitting around? I mean, when you got the call from Andy Conrad, was this, were you looking at other jobs? Were you thinking I should look at another job or was this sort of like out of the blue? Oh, is that out of the blue? Yeah. yeah I, I think that going back to the story that I told at the beginning about my parents and moving from New York to North Carolina, I don't think they would have ever put that, you know, that particular move on, on the radar. But in the, in the same way, when you have guiding principles in your life and their guiding principles were taking care of, well, loving their family, uh, taking care of patients and trying to find places where they could have the biggest impact. I think this really came up at a time where these were the things that I was thinking about, but it, it really was out of the blue. What do you think went into their process? I mean, again, you were well known within a cardiology community, but unless I'm missing something, it's not like you were like on the tonight show. I mean, you were, uh, how did Andy find you and how did he decide to find this relatively junior academic cardiologist in Boston and think this is the person I want to partner with on this venture? The group, and he was looking for someone who uh, deeply passionate about patients, understood healthcare data, understood the studies and the trials and the, the data that you would need and the evidence you would need. Uh, the other thing we talked about was a real familiarity and comfort with the regulatory process, which uh, I've always really respected and and have partnered very closely with, whether it's the FDA or the EMEA, and just understanding that landscape because Again, that's how you're going to make the biggest difference for patients. And so uh, the story he tells is he was Googling people who, who had these criteria, and I came up, and he reached, reached out. I think also finding someone who had the openness and the ability to see the vision, even if it was early days, uh, stood out. So it ended up being a non-trivial move. We had two young kids and a husband who had a great job, and you had to convince them to move out here, but you thought this was a real opportunity. And so you did. And obviously you came out at that time when you came here, which was 2015. Is that right? It wasn't verily, right? It was something else. What was the, what was it called back then? So I joined Google X and the idea Google's mission is to organize the world's information uh, and make it useful. Google X was thinking about places where you could do that same principle, but potentially the applications either had a more physical aspect or uh, they really were areas unto themselves. And so things like the driverless car uh, were within inside Google X. There was a group working on energy, one on access, and then uh, a relatively small group working on life science and healthcare at the time. And so it was a little interesting to show up for orientation, uh, what they call nuclear orientation, and then showing up and being part of a group, as I mentioned, working on autonomous vehicles was just mind-boggling and incredibly interesting. Uh, as it turns out, when you think about even some of the data infrastructure that it takes for cars to travel, so understanding the maps and the roads, but then also understanding what's going on in an individual car and how that car relates to others, there's, there is some data infrastructure that can be leveraged in concepts. So on the surface, the applications seem so disparate, but, th but th we have had shared learnings. But yes, I ended up uh, uh, joining Google Apps in 2015. We then grew, and, and it's not lost, I think, on anyone now that the amount of information going on in healthcare and life science is huge. And we started growing and then over time became Google Life Sciences. And then with the formation of Alphabet, we spun off into a group which we now call Verily. Got it. And so what was just sort of a general growth trajectory in terms of just the number of people. When you joined the group, Google X, back in 2015, how many people were in your group, roughly? Yeah, so we had, it was, we were embedded, so there were pe some people who were on other projects, uh, maybe in the 50, less, definitely less than 100. And how many today are at Verily? Well, so we now have, uh, we have several joint ventures as well. So we not only have Core Verily, we've partnered with groups like Johnson & Johnson, with uh, Sanofi, and also with GSK. And so we have 
uh, another set of, of these entities, but including folks in those, we get closer to uh, to a thousand. Wow, that's big. So when you came out here to interview, were you? Did you obviously you interviewed with Andy and the rest of the team involved in the proto healthcare, you know, whatever it was pre Google Life Sciences? Did you did you interview with Sergey and Larry or Eric or any like? Did you actually go through the whole gauntlet? Yeah, well, I did get. I got to meet um, some really key folks that were part of you know the Google founding team. And then the other interesting thing is along the way, even before I came out here. I just started helping because there were teams who had certain questions. And so in between uh, rounding in the CCU and doing my research, I would I would get on the phone with a number of people. And uh, some of the conversations that were particularly poignant were talking about this concept of randomization that's being done, A-B testing that's done all the time uh, at places like Google, where really trying to make rational decisions and this this framework of clinical trials and understanding what actually works and being data-driven, uh, it was a, remarkable to me how, again, how much we, we had in common. Uh, so uh, so I, had, I had spent some time getting to know the folks on the ground. And by the time you got here, was it clear what the mission was? Like, did do you have a, a set of ideas and projects that were already laid out that you were ready to go tackle? Or was it more you were in the form, formative stage kind of trying to figure out what it was that you guys wanted to, to go after? We knew that there was a lot of hard work to do. Uh, one program that really caught my attention and one of the reasons I joined was this concept of Project Baseline, where going back to what we were talking about earlier, right now, what we understand about health is really a fraction of what truly health is. So if you think about your electronic health record and what's in it, it's a handful of notes that your doctor put in there and there's labs and it's not to underestimate any of those. Um but let's say you see your health system or your doctor a few times a year. Think about everything else that's going on in your life 24 hours a day. And so this idea of Project Baseline was to start to think about health more comprehensively. And the tagline is, we've mapped the world. Now let's map health. And it's obviously an incredibly complicated and visionary uh, objective. But we really started in conjunction with Stanford and with Duke and amazing volunteers trying to understand health inside and outside of the clinic. And so this project was just being ideated. And it had been something that uh, several folks, including Andy and Rob Califf, had been thinking about for a while. Uh, but this idea of really putting it into action was incredibly attractive. So that was one of our major initiatives to understand. The other thing is it allowed us to do is think what really are our capabilities, because I'm known around here as saying there are many, many, many good organizations and industries and people who are incredibly smart and have been working in this field for years. So what is it? What is our unique contribution? And in many cases, that's why you'll you'll see us think about what what real capability are we bringing? And in cases where we could accelerate work together, we'll partner um, trying to bring I think a sense of humility to biology and to engineering. So, what do you think the big thing? Do you think it's scale first and foremost that you bring, but or is it data or what? What is it? What's your it, it's, special sauce? It's a faci- uh, several things. One is everything we do. We do try to root it in what is the problem that we're solving, and I think maybe that's obvious. But sometimes, if people take a technology and they're just trying to shove it, it's kind of a uh, square square peg round hole kind of thing. So we'll try to say, what's the big problem we're solving? And the, the pieces that I've seen that are unique is really a facility with the data and being able to, um, we have one project, for example, looking at the immune system and it's terabytes and petabytes of data. And just people love, I mean, if anything, we hear there's not enough data, we need more data. And I think that kind of energy around data and data science and the infrastructure to handle it is is something that's important. The other thing we start to see is, uh, if you think about some of the image, image collection and analysis and the right, the right tools, that, that there's something, there's something there. And we do the way we're structured. We have an amazing, uh, hardware and engineering group. We have software engineers. We have data scientists. And then we have scientists and folks who have spent a lot of time in healthcare and obviously partnering with all of our central services. So one thing that may not be totally clear is that this is a, effectively a big research project, right? I mean, it's not clear to me today that there's a path towards monetizing Bay Project Baseline, at least not in the near term. I'd love to get your sort of take on how that came about and how that, um, how 
the company views making these longer term R&D investments that may or may not ever generate something of value to the company or to the shareholders. So we, so two things to note. One is that we really do try to take a portfolio approach because there are some things that are on shorter term timeframes. And there's a number of reasons why that's important. Uh, I think that's important to ourselves to to demonstrate that we are doing the rigor and we're doing the work that's going to have impact in the, both the short and the long term. It's also it's important for for patients. They, it's phenomenal when we meet with the advocacy groups, how they're saying, hey, you got you to run faster, you got to run faster. And that is important for people who work here to start to see impact. But if we don't think about this bigger game, and if we don't think about next generation health, and if we don't think about transformative opportunities, then then I think we're doing a disservice because we're in a position where we should be thinking about this. And we talk about, we have a number of different devices and programs and approaches, for example, with diabetes, which is a huge epidemic. Um, hundreds of millions of patients worldwide are going to be suffering with diabetes. And it makes me so proud that we're working um, in conjunction with Dexcom on the world's smallest continuous glucose monitor. And uh, we have a program called Onduo, which is linking this continuous glucose data with clinical care support. Um, we're thinking about so many ways to tackle a problem that is so front and center. We also are working on a program that automates diabetic retinopathy screening, and we're taking it from algorithm and concept all the way to clinical adoption. So if we weren't doing that, that would be a shame. At the same time, I think everybody knows someone who either themselves is struggling with an illness or they have a family member where it's just not known and there's a missing link. And if we're not thinking about these broader understanding of health and disease, then we probably aren't doing our job. And so we do try to balance these longer term initiatives with, with things that we can help people today. Just like her parents had decades before, Jess made a bold decision to move across the country, leaving her prestigious Harvard position at the top of her game. And not to go to biotech or pharma, but to one of the big tech companies, Google. She saw that two things were changing. The size and scope of data in healthcare and the way people did computing. And she got a call from a guy named Andy Conrad, who had previously started a genetics testing company and sold it to one of the biggest lab testing companies in the world. And in 2013 had gone to join Google to help them build a presence in the life sciences. And he found Jess, also a geneticist, with an interest in big data, by Googling her. And ultimately, Jess used a lot of the same guiding principles she had throughout her career and her life to decide to move to California from Harvard. She started at a time when there was no dedicated Google Life Sciences unit, and in fact, when her organization was paired with a team working on autonomous vehicles. She saw the parallels there, and in general, between the work she had been doing at Harvard and the work being done at Google. And as before, she sought to make a great first impression and dove in headfirst even before moving. A few other points that might need some clarification. Jess talked a lot about Project Baseline. Baseline is a long-term effort Google had started before Jess got there. The tagline was, quote, we've mapped the world, now let's map health, end quote. And the two people who incubated it before Jess got there were Andy Conrad and another cardiologist named Rob Califf. His name might be familiar to some, as he was previously the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. What was remarkable about this project was that there was no clear path to baseline leading to money for Google or for its investors. But yet they decided it was important to do, and they did it, and they continue to do it. And so BKM at Verily is to have a portfolio of approaches, some long-term like baseline, that are really long research projects with no clear product, but complementary to that was an assortment of shorter-term projects with clear aims to solve more immediate problems. And many of these are done in partnership with other companies, of course. So this might be a good place for us to come back to this sort of question about designing experiments, for lack of a better word. So I guess my question is, is we know that, at least intellectually, the data we get from a big, well, well-designed, randomized controlled trial is, is gold standard and allows us as physicians to make, to be comfortable in making choices that we know are supported by data. So I have two questions or two parts to one question. The first one is, what is your viewpoint on the sort of real world applicability of some of these 
uh, RCTs, having done them yourself and also practicing, continuing to practice medicine. I loved your take on that. And the second question is, there are so many areas of medicine where either it's impractical or unfeasible to do a randomized controlled trial because it would either take just too much time or too much money. And so how do we as individual human beings and also as individual physicians make decisions without what we consider to be this gold standard level data? The concept of RCTs, the way I think about it is that they tend to be very valid. So the validity is high, but the generalizability can be more challenging. I will start by saying I think that there's a big movement towards saying, hey, we can't do RCTs for many things, so let's abandon the concept. They're big, they're expensive. At the same time, we've all been burned where we thought we understood an observation. We were so sure. Uh, The example I can think that you and I were close to is thinking about LDL lowering, which worked out, but HDL raising didn't. And in fact, uh, this idea to the association that paper people who have a high HDL or good cholesterol actually is advantageous, was seen in many epidemiologic studies or cross-sectional studies. But then when we looked at medicines to raise this particular property, this HDL, it did not help people. If anything, it actually, there was harm. And so having the openness and the humility to say, you can always go in with a biological assumption, but biology is curious and it's hard. And that's, I think, why I like it so much, but it's not an algorithm that you can just write on the board. So I just want to point that out, that there is going to be a role. Now, with that being said, how can we do smarter trials? How can we get better data? How can we really understand a lot of what people are talking about with the learning health system where you learn in the real world? And we were talking a minute ago about baseline and the interesting story of baseline is it's starting with this particular cohort of patients and and deep comprehensive health. But through this endeavor, we've built so many tools and a whole form of infrastructure and outreach to be able to run this trial. And it, it actually, the first bullet point of the protocol says to build next generation tools and technology so we can scale clinical research. And so we've taken that and now we've partnered with the American Heart Association and are working on a registry with them. We've created the baseline registry we're working with health systems and integrating and also working now with industries. And so this idea of what is the future of clinical innovation and discovery and research look like is front and center. And so I think we're going to have to be very open uh, to novel designs. And that's that's something that we're spending a lot of time at Fairly doing. You know, I'm going to ask this question. So what do you do for something like nutrition, which is just sort of an absolute just wasteland of bad information? and 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 yet... It's also something that we all have to do every day. So I'd love to get your take as, you know, having all the experiences that you've had, how you approach your own personal nutrition. Right. And so uh, obviously something that you think about tremendously. uh, But this idea, I'll just tell you about an experience that we're seeing that I'm really learning a lot from in the program that I had mentioned, working with continuous glucose monitors and now pairing that with care leads, one part of the on-duo activity is what's called paired, you essentially do a paired test. And so you look where your glucose is, patients take a picture of their food, we have algorithms that classify the food, and then you see what happens to your own glucose. Now you have to decide, is that the right metric? There are obviously many different metrics uh, that we could talk about, but it's fascinating. So if I'm seeing a patient in the clinic and I say, okay, you need to uh, lower your carbs and you need to exercise and you need to take your insulin and your medicines and uh, get your feet checked, it's just a laundry list that's totally not realistic or applicable. When you have someone who has a glucose level, they eat a banana and then their glucose doubles and then they can see that over time, whereas they eat an apple and it doesn't or some other food product, it's incredibly relevant to that person in the moment. And we're seeing this time and time again now. So it's no longer generic recommendations. It's very personal. And that to me is with nutrition. Again, we have to figure out what markers we believe in. But the more we understand how an individual is responding, I think the more impact that we'll have. Um, So I just want to get your views sort of uh, generically on technology and how maybe a little bit how you feel technology can help enable some of these big changes in healthcare and maybe some of the things you've were a little disappointed about, or you felt like maybe your expectations were too high? So I'm most excited about 
technologies that do two things. One, that leverage a base of discovery that's been going on for a long time. And I'll, I'll give an example, and then I'll talk about places where I think we've been totally overhyped. So uh, we have a program right now that is thinking about diabetic retinopathy screening. So we talked earlier about the epidemic of diabetes. And what we tell patients is that they should get their eyes in the back of their eyes screened for diabetic retinopathy. And this is traditionally done through a fundus or picture of the back of the eye. What's important is if you catch these abnormalities early enough, you can start to treat patients and you can be more diligent about treating their diabetes and hopefully reduce um, or prevent blindness. So diabetes is now one of the leading causes of blindness. What we've been working on in conjunction with Google was an algorithm that could start to read these images. And if you think about it, the algorithm never gets sleepy, right? The algorithm can work 24-7. But we did have to go through all of the ground truth testing. And that's a really interesting story of of how do you actually get ground truth. The way uh, collectively we did it was with a, a panel of ophthalmologists. But this idea that you could start to scale, and we have programs uh, that are now going on in India, for example, we want to make sure we treat both rural and urban populations. But if you could use these tools to help understand and get the best care to patients, um, then that's phenomenal. And what it does is it leverages years of a thing called ImageNet, where work's being done to sort images. And so if anyone has sort of photo apps on their phone and it will sort, if you have animals, it will sort the two dogs that you have and it will sort your kids, your family. And so that technology is really fun to leverage what groups have worked on and just brilliant um, teams have worked on and say, how could we apply this to healthcare? And so to me, those are wins. Now, I always talk about the difference between having an algorithm and actually having a clinically valid solution. So the end-to-end solution needs to have uh, a camera that people believe in the fidelity. You have to work with um, making sure your software is reproducible. You have to understand all the sensitivities and specificities, and you have to link it and augment it with human care. But if you do that, that's great. Now, that to me is a big win. The places I start to scratch my head is if anyone starts by saying, hey, we're going to come up with algorithms to replace primary care. I just, the inputs and the outputs are really dynamic. I think there are places that you can start to to work with certain observations and insights, but the messier and more complicated aspects, I, I just think we have a long, long ways to go. So you're long on static images. So whether it's the retina or I assume also pathology slider, maybe even a radio radiograph. What do you think? Just curious what you think about the potential for dynamic images. So like for echo, is it something you think you see happening soon or not? Yeah, I think there are things, I think there are going to be a lot of observations, some that just automate the work that we do manually. Um, and then I think there are going to be other patterns that are going to show us insights into new causes and underlying diseases. That's what I, I think is great to augment the work we do. But if we can start to think, um, are there different patterns that would help us explain, for example, a heart failure with what we call preserved ejection fraction, which is this new bulk of heart failure where the, the ventricle in the heart is stiffer. We still really have not cracked that nut. And so there may be insights in these dynamic images that start to tell us more about the underlying disease itself. And that, to me, that's cool. That is extremely cool. All right. I just have like two more quick questions. So um, one of them is really about the cultural differences between the organization that you came from, the organization that you're in now. And I'm curious if there's anything that you... Uh, love here that you thought you might not love or that you think you could apply if you were ever to go back to academics that you think there's a organizational structure or process that they do here that that might fit in well back there and then the counter is is there anything here that you're just like this drives me nuts so uh, the the thread that's similar is uh, just working with really really engaged dynamic people i mean that that has felt almost seamless uh there is a more open work style and work culture. So people are working all over the place. We have people in a cafe that are working and we have teams that are coming together. And I spend time in a lot of different areas in our buildings here and um, just seeing what's going on. And so I think there is more fluidity with physical space. And what I've found is that's, that's a really good thing if it can be if it can be honed around a given mission that everyone's working on, because what happens is you know, humans tend to gravitate, you know, I'm sure you and I could go deep on medical jargon. It would make us super comfortable. And 
Uh, we could talk about back in the day, this program and that, but that's our comfort zone. And so being pulled, constantly being pulled out of your comfort zone um, in people who are thinking about the world differently, you almost need physical structures that support that. So those are open workspaces and uh, common rooms and conference rooms that are kind of scattered all over the place. Uh, so I think that's, that's good. It's, it's hard. It's hard to recreate. It pushes people in directions that, you know, maybe you just want to kind of, a lot of people like to work and close their door. Um, so I think that's something that, that I'll always, that I'll always take with me. And, uh, and then I mean, maybe it's the same thing on the flip side, you know, really finding time to think deeply and creativity is not something that you can sort of schedule in. Okay. I'm going to be creative from one fifteen to one thirty-seven. It's going to be amazing. And so being really diligent to carve out that time and you just have to know who you are. I tend to be someone who uh, I was one of those people who always liked to go to the library to study and to really concentrate. I had many friends who loved listening to music and sitting in our common room. I'm just not, I wasn't, and I'm not that person. So just having to, to make sure that it doesn't become just one transaction after the other. Awesome. You probably have a tremendous amount of autonomy as a leader, but if you were sort of a young person here, my impression is that maybe uh, there's less, you have less of a ability to control what you're working on than you might in sort of a more academic environment. Is that, is that fair or not really? Well, you know, I think the beauty of academics and, and I, I talk about this with folks is that, you know, you, you could be working on something one day and you could have this fascinating idea and switch gears. Now, as it turns out, you'll still, the world will still ultimately find out whether the science worked out and whether you get funding for the work that you want to do. So there's autonomy in the minute to minute, but you still have parameters that end up guiding the work that you do. I'm here because there are a number of people working on projects together and it's really is takes a team um, it, it is hard if someone just says, hey, you know, I just don't want to work on that for, for a month because the team's relying on on the work. But I think there's still ways to navigate um, and align with things where you know the pieces that you can control deeply. I guess, how do you get people excited? Uh, that's the thing that I've sort of always been curious about is how you get somebody really to focus on that mission, right? You know, that this is something that I really want to engage on intensely and and I'm excited. I want to get out of bed every day and we're coming to work on this problem. Yeah, that's always been, I think, important for any of us, right? Because the number of, uh, so if you see it through the lens of, okay, I've got to get this contract done and we have to do this. I mean, it just devolves into a series of tasks. And so I think constantly thinking about the mission and what you're trying to get done. And, and it's particularly interesting when some of it's a little bit ambiguous because that's actually, I think, where the most potential is. Um, you know, I, I sometimes think to myself, so if I was working on a app that taught me how to, or taught people how to tie their shoes, I could go home and I could explain that. And I'm sure people would learn how to tie their shoes. But is that really moving the needle? And so what, what I think we all need to do is to think about what's the big picture we're trying to solve? Be honest with here are the things we know, here are the things we don't know. And then realize that all of these intermediate steps level up to this bigger thing. I mean, I remember that from the clinical trials world where some of these trials would be you know, five years, seven years, and you know, we'd be worried about drug supply in a certain country. And if I got down into the weeds of these two barrels are st stuck at the border, I mean, that wasn't the mission. The mission was, are we going to have new medicines to help treat patients with heart disease? And you just had to kind of keep remembering that, and then it made all of it worthwhile. Amazing. Listen, I cannot thank you enough for sitting down with me and doing this. Um, it's fun. We've had a lot of conversations, but we've never done it this way. So hopefully we'll go back to having normal conversations again, too. Yeah, no, it's been a real pleasure. And I have to say, uh, your friendship out here has been a real highlight. And so while I've, I've never looked back since being here in California, I want to thank you personally. Oh, that's very sweet. I appreciate that. Thank you. I only had the chance to meet Jess a few years ago, but I feel like I've known her forever. She has an ease about her, and she's frankly just fun to talk to. But she's also creative, and she's a visionary. Like most of our guests, all of our guests, she has used best-known methods throughout her life. She has also made a dramatic career decision that was bold, unconventional, and perhaps looked, at the time, quite risky. I am in awe of her vision, but I am also in awe of her courage. She was able to see beyond the prestige of her position at Harvard, and the trajectory she was on, to find what she really wanted to do, and to find, as her parents did, where she could have the biggest impact, 
It's such an important lesson for all of us to at least think hard about what we value most. Perhaps some of us want academic prestige or leadership, but in Jess's case, she decided she wanted to have a broad impact on the health and wellness of the world. And she saw the opportunity at Google as the perfect way to follow her own personal mission to have a significant impact on improving as many lives as possible. Anytime a company like Google decides to get into something as big as healthcare, the world will notice. They are only just beginning, but what they are doing is exciting, and we can all see the many places this can or will go. As we've discussed before, we must be humble about the potential negative impacts technology might have on our lives. But we also must appreciate the real and potential positives. With someone like Jessica Mega in her position at Verily, we should all be comforted and, yes, optimistic that our world will be a better place as the result of this kind of work. Identify the biggest problems in healthcare and apply the massive power and infrastructure of a company like Google to start solving them. This is Best Known Method.